If you're new with us, we've been going through uh, the Song of Songs. We're going to take a week break from that and jump back in uh, next Sunday. Uh, this week, uh, we look at this text that reminds us of what it looks like for a life to be changed by the gospel. Uh, let's pray together as we look through these verses. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that it would fall on good soil, and as a result of hearing your word, we would bear much fruit to your glory. We thank you for the clarity and power of this text. We pray that your Holy Spirit would now illuminate our minds and hearts to understand it, embrace it, and be transformed by it. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. A few years ago, The Guardian released an interesting article. In 2009, a woman named Anat uh, decided to surprise her mother by cleaning up her mother's apartment and getting her a brand new mattress while disposing of the old one. What Anat did not realize, however, was that her mother had been storing her life savings inside the old mattress. And by that point, she had saved $1 million. By the time Anat and her mother realized what happened, the mattress was buried in a landfill and could not be found. Anat's mother had been sleeping on riches for much of her life, yet was never able to truly experience the benefits. It's easy for Christians to sleep on the benefits to not allow the rich truths of the gospel to stir their affections and transform their lives. And the book of Colossians reminds us of the glory of Jesus and the riches that we find in him. Paul has been saying in this letter up to this point that the Colossian believers don't need Jesus plus something else. They don't need Jesus plus the mystery religions. They don't need Jesus plus the folk religions. Christ is glorious. Christ is sufficient. Christ is enough. And we also need to go back to the gospel regularly to remind ourselves of what is ours in Christ, to rehearse the benefits of the gospel. Many of them we see in Colossians chapter 3, that we have been raised with Christ. We are chosen. We are holy. We are loved. We will appear with Christ in glory. And when we think about those riches, it really does transform our lives. Twelve years ago, we started this church with the expressed purpose to see lives changed by the gospel. We want to see unbelievers be converted by the gospel and believers to have their lives empowered and shaped by the gospel. And this text helps us to see what that looks like. What does it look like for lives to be changed by the gospel? It means that we have new life in Christ. It means, verse 3, that we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. It means that Christ, verse 4, is our life. It means, verse 12, that we are God's chosen, holy, and beloved children. Paul opened the letter by saying that he's writing to those in Christ at Colossae. And today, as I look out at this outfield, I think, first of all, no ground ball would get through this outfield today. But I think that we are in Christ at Raleigh. And what is most important is your spiritual location. That you understand that your identity is in him. That's why this book is so important. Because the book of Colossians answers three fundamental questions. The first one is, who is Jesus? And most of chapter one is unpacking who Jesus is. If you're new to the Christian faith or exploring the faith, this is a great, it's a great chapter for you to, to consider. But then it answers a second question, and that is, who am I? And chapter 3 is getting at that. As we think about our new identity in Jesus, 
What, what does that look like? What does that mean? And then a third fundamental question it answers is, who are we? Because you see in this text, it's not just an individualized passage, but it thinks about the community. What does it look like practically for Christ to be the center of our lives, especially as a church? So let's think about this text this morning in three parts. First of all, verses 1 to 4, your new life is in Christ. Verses 5 to 11, we are to then put off all that is inconsistent with that new life in Christ. In verses 12 to 17, put on all that is consistent with that new life in Christ. Your new life is in Christ. Put off all that's inconsistent with that. Put on all that is consistent with that. So the first one here, your new life is now in Christ. Paul makes two incredible statements about our new identity. When he says in verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God, and Christ is your life. We have a brand new identity. I wonder, do you know who you are today? Sometimes we ask our kids or maybe someone else, who do you think you are? Maybe when they're taking your Chick-fil-A fry or something along those lines. My mom used to ask me, don't, or tell me, don't forget who you are. And this question of identity is one of the main questions of our day, is it not? And if you are confused about your identity, it will lead to relational dysfunction. It will lead to a lack of understanding about your purpose in life. You'll be tempted to be a chameleon, to act one way around one group of people and another way around a different group of people, wanting desperately to impress people. But when you settle this in your heart, Christ is my life. I am chosen, holy, beloved. Then you know how to live regardless of the crowd you're in. This is very freeing and very purpose-giving to know that we are deeply loved by Jesus Christ and bound up with him. We are united with Christ. See, Jesus not only gives us a new identity, he invites us to share his identity. We get caught up in his, in his identity through our union with him. What is his is ours. And when you begin to grasp these things, it really does change everything. So notice here four truths about this identity. He says in verse 1, you share in Christ's victory. If then or since then you have been raised with Christ. What a thought today. Little old us have been raised with Christ. There was a historical resurrection, but there are also implications of that resurrection, one of which is we share in Christ's resurrection victory. We've been raised with him. That little word with, I've told you before, is the Greek prefix that we would spell S-Y-N or S-U-N, sin or soon. And it's where we get the idea of being synced up with something. Like your iPhone syncing with your iPad. We have been synced up with Christ. What is true of him is true of us. We share in that victory. Today you may see some Texas fans with their chest out today as Texas beat Alabama last night, and you may say to them, uh, congratulations, you guys won. But in reality, your friend didn't play a single play. They were eating Cheetos, uh, watching the game on a flat screen, perhaps. But we say, you share in that victory because that is your team. You identify with them. And in a much greater way, the victory of Jesus Christ is our victory. We can say to one another, because of Jesus, we won. We've been raised with him. 
And secondly, he says, you not only share in this victory, but you have a new priority. And that new priority is to seek things that are above, to set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. That is to, to seek the beauty of Christ, the rule of Christ, the glory of Christ. And he adds, this is where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God. Think about that right now this morning. So we sit out here in North Raleigh. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's not pacing. He's not wringing his hands. He's doing what kings do. They sit and they rule. He rules the world sitting down. And Paul adds, doesn't he, in Romans 8, that he's also interceding for us in this very moment. So our priority is to seek him, to seek the things of Christ, to not seek earthly praise or earthly advancement that would build up our ego or something along those lines, but to seek Christ. And the sovereign rule of Christ, the fact that he's ruling it all, I pray would just ooze into our pores today and give us peace. Don't sleep on the sovereign rule of Christ. Let it affect you. Let it fill you with hope today. You see, it's a lot easier to believe in the sovereignty of Christ than it is to actually rely on the sovereignty of Christ. We need to experientially rely on him. We have this new priority. Thirdly, we have a new security. Notice in verse 3, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You are secure and you are safe in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're not safe. There's only one safe place to be, and that is to be in Christ. If you are in him, that is, you put your faith in him, then you are safe and secure. It doesn't mean you won't have hardships and pain in this life. You'll actually have many of them. But Jesus will keep you in the midst of all of it. He's our great refuge. Our lives are hidden with Christ and God. Paul may also intend to communicate something of the hiddenness of the Christian. On the one hand, we could look at one another and say there's not a whole lot that's, you know, uh, spectacular about each other. There's a certain ordinariness. But when Christ is revealed again, you will see the Christian for who he or she really is. There is something that will be spectacular when the glory of Jesus is revealed on the last day, when we see him as he is and we become like him. And so we have a new security in Christ. Belonging to Jesus Believing the truths of Colossians chapter 3 puts all of our trials into their proper perspective. This is our Christ. Fourthly, it means we have a new destiny. You have a new victory, you have a new priority, a new security, and a new destiny. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What a statement there that Paul makes. Christ is your life. It's very similar to what he says in Philippians 1 when he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But he's not just our lives. Notice he's also our hope that he will appear and we will appear with him in glory. One of the phrases I love there in verse 4 is that little phrase, then you also. That's so vintage Jesus. How do we experience glory? We are with him then you also will appear with him in glory. I don't know if you've ever had entrance into a special place because you knew someone important. 
I used to wonder what people did in, in the lounges at the airports. I just would see them at a distance frolicking inside and, you know, eating chocolate strawberries or something. And, and then one of my professors took me into that lounge. I made it because I was connected to him. Recently, I got to go on the field of the Baltimore Orioles because Adam Mutasov knows a player, and I had a badge, and I could go onto the field. Otherwise, I would have been locked up in handcuffs if I tried to do that sort of thing. The only way we appear with Jesus in glory is we're with him. And that's what Paul is saying to us. We will share in that resurrection glory. And this is how, church, we persevere in this life through all of the dangers, toils, and snares that we face. We remember our future. We remember our destiny. I'm reminded of a Florence Chadwick lady who enjoyed a challenge. She was the first lady to ever swim the English Channel back and forth. And in 1952, she attempted to be the first lady to swim the Katina, uh, Catalina Channel from Catalina Island to California. And for over 15 hours, she braved the waters of the Pacific with her mother cheering her on at a, in, in a boat beside of her. But she ran out of steam just one mile from the coast. And afterwards, she said, all I could see was the fog. If I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Two months later, she made it, did it again. But I love that line. Sometimes in this life, all we can see is the fog. But we're just a mile from the shore, church. Keep swimming. Keep persevering. The psalmist says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. We're almost to the shore. We will appear with him in glory. So that's the first point. Your new life is in Christ. Secondly, we are called here to put off all that is inconsistent with this new life. And Paul mentions a number of things. He says in verse 5, to put to death these certain sins. And then he later uses a, a, a clothing analogy to put off these things. You see that uh, there in the text as he moves to uh, putting off to putting on language. Identity and clothing often go together, don't they? Today in sports, the, the transfer portal is a hot topic. Players can leave one school, go to another school. Kentucky has a running back from Vandy. Have, they have a quarterback from NC State. Sorry about that. But you don't see the new running back wearing a Vandy jersey when he's playing for Kentucky, nor the quarterback wearing NC State when he's playing for Kentucky. The clothing matches the identity. And we, too, are to wear certain characteristics that now reflect our new identity as Christians. We've entered the ultimate transfer portal, having gone from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And now we are to wear new clothing, as it were. So he says... Because Jesus has dealt with certain things in your life, put away things like sexual sin and greed and anger and sinful speech. That's what Jesus has done. Because he's given us a new calmness that we're to put away anger, a new cleanness, we now put away impurity, a new contentment, we now put away covetousness, and a new candor, we put away lying. That's what Jesus does. That's what it means to live consistently with this new identity. So the first one is mentioned there, this call to put away impurity. A long list of vices, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Here Paul says, put it to death. Don't just try to manage your sin, but kill your sin. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Put away all of those things. Put, to, put them to death. 
Then he hits this idea of covetousness, desiring that which belongs to others or to, to be caught up into material greed. I love what Hebrews 13 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We can be free from greed because we have something better than material possessions. We have the presence of Jesus Christ. That's how we can be content. On account of these, here's how serious this is. If we live in kind of unrepentant sin, the wrath of God is coming. That these sins provoke God's wrath. And we must remember, verse 7, that we once walked this way, but now we are different. We have been transformed. These sins are inconsistent with our new identity. And it goes to this issue of, of anger. Because Jesus has given us a, a certain calmness now, we are to put away anger, wrath, and malice. Wrath meaning this rage that causes your anger to boil over, to have a quick temper. This is one of the primary ways you're going to show that Jesus has changed you and that uh, you don't fly off the handle all of the time. That, that Jesus has given you a, a sense of gentleness and slander. He mentioned speech now that often comes out of an angry heart, right? Put away slander and obscene talk. So because Jesus has done this, put away anger. And then put away lying, verse 9. Do not lie to each other. Great churches are filled with honest people. And you notice this list that Paul gives us really touches on the basic human temptations of all humanity. You put them in three categories, to feel, to have, and to be. To feel, sex, passion, pleasure, to have, possessions, or to be, just pride. Our anger is often an expression of that. I think every single commercial that was ever made plays on one of those three. These are all the old clothes. That's the old uniform. Put it all away. He gives us the rationale for that in verse 9. Why do we do this? He says, because you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. We have new sensibilities. We have new abilities. We have new possibilities because of Jesus. This image is being renewed in the image of its creator. Since we are new and are being renewed, live in a way that is consistent with this new identity. And a practical implication of this, verse 11, is that there will be harmony in the church. Here, he says, here, that is when we're living out this identity, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We can enjoy the blessing of harmony when we live out this new identity. Racial barriers are broken down, Greek and Jew. Religious and ethnic barriers are broken down, circumcised and uncircumcised. Cultural barriers are broken down, barbarian, Scythian. Social barriers are broken down, slave and free. The gospel brings us together. Jesus brings us into great unity. And this is what made a, it was a powerful witness to the pagan world in the first century. And it makes a, a powerful witness in our day as well. And then Paul has this sort of Christological culmination point when he says Christ is all and is in all. Christ lives in each believer and Christ unites us together. When our identity in Christ is more important than all of our other identities, then we can have unity in the midst of diversity. Jesus changes everything. 
He overcomes our filthiness, our fury, our falsehood, and our fragmentation. He makes us clean, calm, truth-tellers united together. And praise his name for that. We'll put on all that is consistent now with your new life in Christ. Verses 12 to 17. I mentioned them in the prayer, and I want to put them in the form of that prayer just to be kind of regular ways for us to pray as a church. As Paul begins to talk not just again about individual identity, but about the church. Number one, may the character of Christ adorn us. He again reminds us of our new identity when he says that we are chosen, holy, and beloved. I submit to you that would make a great difference in your Monday if you start off reminding yourselves of that. And your Tuesday and so on. This is the rhythm of the Christian life. Remember who you are and then live out of that. And these are all traits of Christ, right? In verse 12, put on compassion. That is put on a concern for people. Put on kindness. That is a graciousness, a goodness, a gentleness. Put on humility and meekness. These were not virtues in Paul's day, but this is the soil by which all virtue grows. A humble heart. A humble heart looking on the interests of others. You know, if you take a trip to Bethlehem and visit the church of the Nativity, which is a church built on top of the place where they believe Jesus was born, to enter that church building is very interesting. You must walk below what's called the door of humility. It's a very short little door, tiny little door, causing people to, to, to duck down to get under it. You enter in sort of a, in, a, in a vulnerable position. And it's such a picture of how we enter into the community, how we enter into the Christian faith. And the cross is ultimately that great humbling door. And this is how we interact with each other through this note of humility. Put on humility, put on meekness, which is the opposite of harshness or arrogance. Meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control. It's a characteristic of Jesus who says, come to me, I am meek or lowly of heart. Do people feel that way when they see you? That is a meek person. That's a welcoming person. And put on patience. That is, you're willing to endure things. You're willing to be faithful when things are hard. You can be faithful through frustration. How we need God's grace to do these things, don't we? And all of this character is then expressed in two ways. As he says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Now, why did Paul have to tell the Colossians, hey guys, bear with each other? It's because there are some difficult people in God's church. And you might be one of them. I'm probably one of them, I'm sure. But yeah, this is how we get along in, in the church. The church is not made up of not everybody is easy to be around at certain seasons of their lives or whatever, but what do we do? Well, he says we bear with one another. I was reading the Proverbs this morning just thinking about how often the Proverbs talk about this. Like Proverbs 17, verse 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love. Or Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Or Proverbs 16, 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And this is my favorite one. Proverbs 19, verse 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. 
It's a glorious, beautiful thing to overlook an offense. That's the idea, I think, with bearing with one another. It doesn't mean that you don't see things, but that there's a sense of grace and mercy displayed toward one another. And there may be even a deeper need, which is to forgive, as he says. You notice it's a demand. It's not a suggestion. You must also forgive. Because this is the trait of the new self. And why are we to forgive? Because the Lord has forgiven us. Right? How has Jesus forgiven us? Fully. He's forgiven us freely. He's forgiven us gladly. Therefore, this is the principle underneath the practice of our forgiveness of other people. And so he says, put on all of this. And almost like a belt that everything hangs on, he says, above all, put on love, which brings everything into perfect harmony. So may this character of Christ adorn us, IDC. This is kind of like the family traits of the church. I don't know if your family has traits. Maybe you're from a tall family or a short family, artistic family. Kimberly's from a musical family, even a dancing family. A military family. These are the traits of God's family. Compassion, right? Kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And we put on love. May the character of Christ adorn us. Secondly, may the peace of Christ rule us. Let the peace of Christ rule into your heart, in your hearts, to, in which indeed you are called into one body, and be thankful. The peace of Christ here is calling to mind the calmness of mind, the calmness of soul that is not troubled by adversity. That we can be surrounded by uh, problems and conflicts. So I was talking to a friend earlier that some, some days you just think... I'm living on the edge of a crisis every day. You know, I get in my recliner every morning to read the Bible and I sit down and I'm like, Lord, I have no idea what's about to happen today. May the peace of Christ rule me, whatever happens. May there be a steadiness to us. It's interesting, this word rule originally meant to act as an umpire. And I think that's important as we think about relationships in the church. Christ's peace must have the final decision in regard to conflict. That is to say, let peace be your goal in all of your dealings. And when this peace happens, it's a sign of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. For when Jesus comes again, there will be total peace. The peace of Christ will rule on the earth. Amen. And this is what we've been called to in this one body, this gift of peace, and be thankful. Paul continues to punctuate his letter in the Colossians with this word of thankfulness. You see it in verse 15, verse 16, and verse 17. Previously in chapter 2 and verse 7. I love the Heidelberg Catechism that asks, how many things are needed in order to live and die in comfort? And it answers it this way. First, we need to know the greatness of our sin and misery. Second, we need to know that we are redeemed from our sins and misery. And third, we are to be thankful to God for such a redemption. That's how we live in comfort, to remember the gospel. Let there be thankfulness in the fellowship. Let there be peace in the fellowship. May the character of Christ adorn us. May the peace of Christ rule us. Thirdly, may the word of Christ transform us. You notice how the peace of Christ there is tied to the word of Christ. You may say it this way, the peace of Christ rules 
where the word of Christ dwells. And if the word is not dwelling in us, it's very likely that there will be conflict and chaos in our souls and perhaps in relationships. So let the word of Christ, that is the message of Christ, that's what the word is about. It's about the gospel. It's about this Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell. That is, let it be at home in you. Don't let the word be an occasional visitor in your heart. But let it be living in your heart. Let the word be transforming your heart. And you notice then how the focus goes corporate when he says, as you teach and admonish one another. Are you able to teach someone? And admonish someone. Everybody is called to do that as a Christian. Doesn't mean there aren't formal roles in the church, but every Christian, as the word of Christ dwells in them, should be able then to teach and admonish others. And one of the ways we do this one another teaching, he says, is by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And as a side note, you just notice how he re refers to the psalms as the word of Christ, that the psalms are pointing us to our Christ. And we have here in verse 16, then a little mini understanding of corporate or community worship, that it should always be word driven, Christ centered and community focused. As you sing songs to one another, how many of you have been blessed at some point? You have to raise your hand or anything, um, but you know, somebody in the church is going through something and you see them singing and that is powerful. That's the kind of thing we do as we sing corporate songs together. As we gather together, knowing the kind of thing that's going on in our brothers and sisters' hearts, and we sing them, see them exalting Jesus, and it is a powerful word of encouragement to us. So, may the, the character of Christ adorn us. May the peace of Christ rule us. May the word of Christ transform us. And finally, with the sun setting on my head, may the name of Christ motivate us. May the name of Christ motivate us. Verse 17, whatever you do. Now that's a verse. What, what things are you talking about, Paul? Whatever you do. Very comprehensive. How comprehensive? In word or deed. Do everything. Everything we say, everything we do, our home, our work, our pleasure, our leisure, our sleep, our eating, whatever we do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We are to be thankful people today. Jesus Christ has solved our greatest problem. We have been raised to life with him. We will appear with him in glory. Therefore, let everything you do be done in his name. What does it mean to do something in the name of Christ? I land the plane here. It means to be conscious of his calling of you. Remember who you are. You bear Christ's name. It's one thing to bear your family's name. It's another thing to bear the name of Jesus. Be conscious of the fact that you bear his name. It means to be aware of his presence. Wherever you go, whatever you do, his sovereign presence is with us. And then thirdly, it means to be mindful of all of his instructions to us, to live in a manner consistent with what he has taught us. This is the great motivation of our lives.
It's the motivation of our home, as Paul will go on, indeed, in Colossians to talk about this. And at work is that we would seek to honor Christ by the power of Christ. So, Imago Day, it's my joy to remind you that your new life is now in Christ. We share in Christ's victory. We have a new priority. We have a new security. And we have, by God's amazing grace, a new destiny. So let's put off all that is inconsistent with this new life. And let's put on all that is consistent with this new life. The character of Christ, may it adorn us. The peace of Christ, may it rule us. The word of Christ, may it transform us. The name of Christ, may it motivate us. On this 12-year anniversary IDC, may Christ continue to be all to us. May we continue to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. May our lives reflect more of Christ's character. May our hearts be filled with more of Christ's peace. May our lives be more transformed by Christ's word. And may his name always be the center of our ambitions. One day, one day soon, we will appear with him in glory. Praise be to God for his word. Let's pray together and give thanks to God for this great news. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that indeed it would settle down in our homes, in our hearts rather, and transform us. We pray that you would help us to live out of this new identity that you've given us. We thank you for all that we have in Christ. May we not be sleeping on the benefits today, but may you awaken us every day to all that is ours in Christ. And I pray that we would then live in a manner consistent with this wherever you have us, in our homes or at our work or as we bear witness to Jesus Christ. We pray that even this morning, in this moment, as we prepare our hearts in just a second to take the Lord's Supper, that this will be a time in which we could confess sin and put away all of the, the sins that are inconsistent with our new identity, and that this would be a means of refreshment and renewal as we seek to, to please you in every way, living in a manner consistent with this new identity. Jesus, we thank you for the great salvation we have as we sing these songs to you gathered together outside today under your big sky. We are reminded that one day we are going to a place where we will be uh, surrounded by a multitude of people who have been redeemed by your blood from every people, tribe, language, and nation. And I pray that we could live this day in light of that day. May your hope today fill us with strength as we deal with present issues, present challenges, and present trials. We thank you that we do not walk alone, that you are with us and that we have brothers and sisters to endure with as well. And so we give you praise, we give you honor, and we sing to your name now. And we pray this in your good name. And everybody said, Amen.